0: All right, now this is not the most important question that you'll ever be asked, and I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want to show you a picture, and in your mind, figure out what it is that you see first. The first thing that your brain processes, this was something that the uh, Internet Wizards created last year, around last March, and it kind of became viral on the Internet, and they tell us that people who are more creative and artistic, that the first thing that they see is a fish. And people who are more analytical and detail-oriented, they tell us that they should see a mermaid. But I'm pretty sure all that's made up. And, and that this is either a seal or a donkey. Like that's, so I want to take a quick poll, okay? Because it sounds like you might agree with me. Does anybody see a fish or a mermaid when you look at this thing? Anybody? Anybody? A fish. So somebody, somebody saw, some of you saw a fish first. Any mermaids out there? Okay. So how about a seal? Who's, uh, that's a, that's a lot of people. A lot of people see a seal first. Okay. So what about a donkey? That's, okay. That's what I saw. And I'm not sure what that says about us. (laughs) That we saw a donkey first. It's an ambiguous image and pictures like that, they they might be able to tell us something about the different ways that we see the world. And if you squint and look hard enough, you might be able to see different kinds of things in that single image. And you know, in Jesus' day, when people looked at him, different people saw different things. Some people, they looked at Jesus and they saw a a ruler, a king, a potential person who could create a revolution to help them overthrow bondage and the Roman authorities that were keeping the Jewish nation down and other people, they looked at Jesus and they saw a very clear threat to their own power, their own authority, their own influence. And even today, when people look back on Jesus through the scriptures, people see different things. Some people today, I mean, they argue that what they're seeing is a legend, is something that, that doesn't really match up with reality, that somebody made something of him that he, he's really not. And other people, they, they see a fraud. They see him as one in a long line of, of different deceivers. Different people, they, they come to different conclusions when they take a look at Jesus and Really, that's why this weekend and every weekend leading up to Easter, we're taking a hard look at Jesus. We're considering who he is through what he said and what he did during the last week of his life on earth. And today, today, we, we want to end up taking three action points that can help us more clearly understand who Jesus is, and what he's all about, and the difference that that makes in our own lives. And today we're kicking off this series where we're going to journey with Jesus and take footsteps with him through that final week of his life, and Mark is our guide. So we're in Mark's gospel, beginning in chapter 11 today, and if you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark 11. We're going to take a look at the story that happens through, from Mark 11, verse 1, all the way to verse 25, verse 25. And we're going to hear Jesus speaking and we're going to see him doing different things that help us understand who he is and then how we can respond to him, how we can keep following after him. You know, you know I, would, I would love to take you with me to Jerusalem. There is no place on earth like that city And a few years ago, I was able to visit with a group of friends, and it was an incredible experience. And on the final full day of our time in Israel, we were in Jerusalem, and we retraced some of the steps that Jesus took during his last week on earth. We started out on the Mount of Olives, and I want you to see a snapshot that I took as we were were traveling down a path. This is just a You know, from my phone, we were walking down this road. You can you can see how steep that road is, and we followed that road all the way down into the valley that's between the city, and then we made our way up into the city, and then retraced where Jesus went. You you can see a few landmarks. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is right over here, and of course, that's where the temple would have been standing in Jesus' day. Things would have looked different. The city's definitely built up and it's grown and the Temple Mount extends from here all the way over to the corner of the old city. Jesus, six days before Passover, walked down the Mount of Olives, actually he rode, and he entered the city during the last week of his life and everything that he did, everything that he said, had a purpose. He was very intentional in the different steps that he was taking all through that week. You can see how steep the path is, and the path that Jesus was on, It would have been dusty. It wouldn't have been a paved road. You know, on the other side of this wall to the right, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is, the garden where Jesus would later stop and pray. Jesus was making his way into Jerusalem, and somewhere on the Mount of Olives, he stopped, and his disciples had procured a donkey for him to ride on, and they laid their coats on top, and then Jesus sat on the donkey. And people were traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, a week-long festival that climaxed in a feast where God's people remembered how he had brought them out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt to give them new life and freedom and a new identity. And Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem with all of these pilgrims. And the pilgrims, they, they cut down branches and and they threw their coats on the ground in front of his donkey, and they waved the branches, and they sang songs they chanted. In fact, they chanted from Psalm 118, songs that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem. And I want you to get a glimpse of what that scene must have looked like from Mark chapter 11, verse 9, with Jesus right in the middle of all of these different activities. I want you to read this along with me in Mark 11, verse 9. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in the highest heaven! This is straight out of Psalm 118. They were singing this song of praise to Jesus as he was entering the city on a donkey. And he was fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 that that talked about how one day Messiah would be entering the city riding on a donkey. So Jesus made his way all the way to the city, into Jerusalem, and found his way into the temple courts. And You know what happened when he got to the temple, the temple courts, the center of worship? This whole big festival and parade has been happening with him as he entered the city. And once he got to the temple, the center of Israel's worship, nothing happened. It was just crickets. And Mark tells us that Jesus looked around carefully. He walked through the temple mount, the temple courts. He looked around carefully and then he left. He left the city. He went back to the little village that he was staying in with his disciples. It would have been somewhere in that Mount of Olives area. That was it. The next morning, Jesus and his disciples got up to go back to the city, back to the temple. And it was morning time, and Jesus was hungry. In the distance, he saw a fig tree that was full of beautiful leaves. And he was hungry, and this time of year, it was early in the year, Along with the leaves, there should have been small little buds, figs that would grow all through the season to be harvested later on, but these little buds were still good for eating. You could grab a handful of these buds pretty quickly and rub them in your hands, and then they made a good nutritious snack. Jesus saw this tree in the distance, and he plans to grab some of these buds, these early figs, to eat. But when he gets to the tree, there are no buds on that tree at all. It's just full of leaves, but there's no fruit. (laughs) Jesus is disappointed. And then he speaks with anger and he curses the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And His disciples take note of Jesus' unusual reaction and then they just keep walking because Jesus was on a mission that day. He wasn't just taking a casual walk. He was coming back to the temple area where he had observed the day before very carefully. He looked around and he went back home and now he's coming back to those courts. And when he enters, an area of the temple complex that was called the court of the Gentiles. He does something shocking and confrontational. This court of the Gentiles, this was a place designated for non-Jewish people to be able to gather and pray and to worship the Lord. But instead of being that kind of a place, instead it had become a business. It had become a place of commerce where where the priests who ran the temple, they were exchanging money. It was the money exchange for Jewish pilgrims who came with foreign money, and they had to pay their temple tax in the shekel. And they would bring their money, and they would exchange that money uh, to pay their temple tax and perhaps to buy sacrifices or to conduct other business. And Jesus walks into this court that's intended for prayer, and he makes a whip. And he turns over the tables where people are changing money, and he drives out all the people who are doing business. And he's angry again, and he says, You turned my father's house that was meant for prayer into a place for business and commerce. That's not what this is supposed to be. Jesus creates a a significant confrontation, and then again, he leaves, he walks out of the city. He goes back to the village he's staying in with his disciples. And then the next morning, again, Jesus and his disciples get up. They're going to go right back into the city. And as they're coming back into the city, they, they start to see that fig tree in the distance again, the one that Jesus stopped and cursed. And I want you to see what, what happens in verse 20 in Mark chapter 11. The next morning, as they pass by this fig tree that Jesus had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up from the ground up and peter remembered what jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed look rabbi the fig tree you cursed has withered and died and then jesus and his disciples they have a conversation jesus said to the disciples have faith in god i tell you the truth You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe that it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first, forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Wow. That is strong teaching and strong confrontational actions from Jesus. It's not the kind of thing that I think we're accustomed to seeing him do, cursing a fig tree and throwing out people who are doing business and, and then presenting strong, convicting teaching. What is this all about? It's really a difficult part of the scriptures to understand, but everything that Jesus was doing six days before Passover, beginning the final week of his ministry and life on earth, it had a purpose. It was intentional. From the way he rode into the city on a donkey while people praised and the way he cursed this fig tree and He cleaned out this court of the Gentiles in the temple and then he wrapped it up with this this teaching that's that's frankly hard to understand and to make sense of, much less to practice in life. What is this all about? Today, this is our our focus because if we can start to figure out Mark 11, maybe we can get a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what he's all about. So I want to encourage all of us toward three action points that come from these stories and teachings that we're finding about Jesus. First, receive Jesus for who he is. Receive Jesus not for who you think he should be or who you want him to be or who somebody else said that he was, but receive Jesus for who he is. Now, there were Galileans who were traveling with Jesus and his disciples all the way into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And those Galileans, they saw Jesus as a potential king and a ruler. In fact, earlier in Jesus' life, they tried to grab him and forcibly make him a king and cause him to start a revolution. And as they're coming into the Passover and all the nation is gathered, those Galileans are back. And they are Jesus' supporters, they are big fans of his. And they're thinking, okay, Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the time when he's really going to start the revolution. And they are excited and they're cheering. But a few days later, yeah, they're gone. They are quiet when Jesus is on trial and when he's been arrested and when they see everything turning against him. And there were other people who were already in Jerusalem, the the priests who were running the temple system, The, the people, the families who were in charge of the nation's worship. They saw Jesus in a very different way because they saw him as a threat to their own standing and authority. His teaching, it didn't really support them. It was throwing them out. It was pointing out how they were off and how they were wrong. And then then he attacked their economy, their business, which might have been the last straw for them. If he was going to cut off the flow of money that they received then they had no use for him at all. And their hatred of him it was ratcheted up to a new level that, that influenced them to take the actions they would take later on to arrest him and try and put him on trial for his life. They saw Jesus as a threat. Very few, if anybody, very few people, if any of them, they, could they see Jesus for who he really was. Remember, this was six days before Passover. And while Jesus was entering the city with the pilgrims, six days before Passover was also the day when all of the lambs that had been cared for for a year were brought into the temple because they would be sacrificed later in the week as part of the Passover celebration. And it was on that day that Jesus decided to enter the city. The very same day that all of those other sacrifices were coming into the city. That's when Jesus walked through those gates and walked into the temple and carefully looked around. Receive Jesus for who he is. He can't, he can't fit into the boxes and into our presuppositions and our assumptions. Jesus isn't a, a genie confined to a bottle that we can make wishes of and that he grants those wishes. He's not someone that we can control and that we can manipulate into doing our will and what we want. He's much bigger than that. Jesus is the visible expression, the visible image of the invisible God. He's the express image of God's person and character. He was before everything, And he made everything that is and everything that exists is held together by him and by his word and by his power. It is through Jesus that we find forgiveness of sins and new life and redemption. He came into that city as a sacrifice with all the other sacrifices because he had a purpose that was beyond anything that anybody else can imagine. You want to know who Jesus is? We have to receive him for who he is, not for who we want to try to make him become or for who we imagine that he could be. We receive him just as he is. Second, from these stories, a second action point for us is to produce good fruit from strong roots. Everything that Jesus does is intentional in Mark chapter 11. And the way that Mark tells his story, it also has a purpose. And Mark uses this technique that he he uses throughout his gospel where he sandwiches different stories together. It's something that we could miss through a casual reading, but Mark likes to create different layers of a story. In Mark chapter 11, it works like a club sandwich. If, I hope that's not sacrilegious, but if you, if you read that story, there are these different layers where Jesus goes into the city and then he leaves the city, and then he's coming back, and he sees this fig tree, and he curses the tree, and he goes into the city, and then he leaves the city, and then he comes back again, and then he is to his disciples, they see this tree again before he gets back into the city, and we'll pick up the story from there next week, but Mark puts these different layers in his story in order to amplify the message that he's trying to get across. Throughout Israel's history, different prophets, they used images to explain who they were, their identity as God's people, and one of the most common images was of a fig tree. Prophets like Hosea and Jeremiah, they talked about their nation, Israel, as a fig tree. And Jesus, in his actions and words, he's picking up on that imagery. And it would not have been lost on a Jewish audience if they were reading the story. But to us, it's a, it could be a little confusing. Like, what is this business about a fig tree being cursed? And why would Jesus do that? It just seems kind of mean, doesn't it? And Peter, when, when they were walking you know, back to the city on that next day and he saw the tree, he observed how this tree, it didn't die from the outside in. Like if if a tree shrivels up or a plant, if it's not getting enough water, then it'll die from the outside in. The leaves will start to shrivel from the outside and then it just keeps dying because it can't push the nutrients out to all the leaves and the branches. But somehow they were able to discern that this tree, it died from the ground up, from the roots up in one day. It wasn't just parched, it was gone. What is this about? Remember Jesus, he made it all the way to the temple courts and he looked around very carefully. And then it was the next day when he saw this fig tree in the distance and it was full of leaves, it looked good. It looked like it should have a lot of buds that would be good for picking. And He got to the tree and it was bare. It was all show and no-go. There, there was nothing there for him to grab onto, to eat. So he cursed it. In a place, a building, a system, a structure, a house that belonged to God, God himself showed up and walked in and looked around and nobody noticed. Collectively, all the people in those temple courts, they just yawned when God himself entered his house. Now, from a distance, that temple looked amazing. There was all kinds of activity. There were sacrifices. There was praise songs. There was worship. There were gatherings. It was a bustling, busy place where lots of good things were going on. But when Jesus looked around carefully, when God himself looked around carefully, nobody noticed. It was empty. Just like a fig tree that looked good on the outside, but was producing no fruit good fruit comes from strong roots and i think a lot of us we can become caught up in managing the impressions that we make on other people on what other people see what other people experience from us how our outer life is shaped And if we're not careful, that impression management becomes exhausting and all-consuming. What Jesus is really looking for is faith, is just simple trust and belief in him. It's It's not all the leaves that are flashy and showy and beautiful. It's the reality of roots that go down deep into who he is and into his love and into his faithfulness for us. If we're able to focus on the roots in our life, then the fruit is going to take care of itself. The fruit is not something that we produce because of our ingenuity, creativity, and self-discipline and actions. All of those good things in our life, the love, the joy, the peace, the the long-suffering, the gentleness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the self-control, that comes from the work of God's Spirit working through us, as our roots are put down deep into who Jesus is. We can produce good fruit, but only from strong roots, not from focusing on that outward appearance. We need to receive Jesus for who he is, not for who we want to make him become. And then third, Jesus gives us a strong test of our spiritual health and maturity. In his final teachings, test your maturity with faith, and forgiveness. I'm going to be straight with you. The, the way Jesus teaches at the end of the verses that we read, you know, verses 20 to 25, that is really hard to understand because I, I have never, I've never said to a mountain, yeah, get, why, don't you, why don't you pick yourself up and jump into the ocean? And I've never seen anybody do something like that. And, and then when he talks about forgiveness, that's, that's a real challenge to live that way with other people. And the way that Jesus phrases that teaching about faith and forgiveness, it's it's difficult to make sense of, but faith, trust in God, and forgiving other people, those are real authentic tests of our spiritual health and maturity. Jesus was leading his disciples to understand that he didn't want them to end up, he didn't want them to end up like the city of Jerusalem. He didn't want them to be a tree that's full of leaves with no fruit. And a real test for them and for us is our faith and our forgiveness. Jesus said to his followers when they noticed this tree, have faith in God. If you have faith in God, if you put your faith in God, then you'll be able to do things like, say, this mountain get picked up and moved into the sea. It's going to happen because with God... Nothing is possible. I want to make three quick observations about this teaching about faith before we talk about the forgiveness. Three ways that I think can help us understand what Jesus is trying to get across. First, pay attention to the context of what Jesus is saying. Jesus was having all these discussions around the Temple Mount. And and in about 40 years, The mountain of the temple, this incredible structure that was one of the wonders of the world, it would literally be picked up and moved until it didn't exist anymore. Judgment was going to fall on a mountain that looked to his disciples indestructible, like it would stand forever. A a mountain that was built as a place to house God and worship God would be entirely destroyed. In about 40 years, it'd be gone. It's very likely, very possible, that Jesus was speaking about a specific mountain that would crumble and fall. In fact, that's the way some of the religious leaders took a lot of his teaching when he talked about the temple coming down, and they accused him of speaking against the temple in just a few days. The second observation about this teaching, we fall into two dangers when we try to understand this passage of either minimizing or maximizing what Jesus had to say we tend as Christians to fall into two extremes, to either minimize his teaching about faith or to maximize it some of us immediately, we start to explain it away. Like there's no way Jesus was saying that faith can do these impossible things because that doesn't match up with our experience and we find ways to talk around it. And then others of us and other good believers and Jesus followers maximize this teaching so that so that then we hear things like, you know, that there's more of a name it, claim it kind of an idea that if you want to be healthy, all you have to do is speak health into your life. And if you believe strong enough, and if your faith is big enough, then you're going to be healed. That if you want prosperity, you just have to find ways to keep speaking that into your life. And so that somehow then, if your faith is big enough, it's going to happen. And, and that our problem is really the smallness of our faith. And if we can get a bigger kind of faith, that then we really can move these mountains. Both of those extremes are very dangerous in our Christian experience and in our Christian life. The third observation is that it's really best for us to understand how Jesus lived out this principle. How did Jesus operate with this kind of big faith in God and how did that work out in his own life experience? If 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 you had your bible open and you flipped a few pages to mark chapter 14 we can see exactly where jesus uses a nearly identical phrase to the one that he uses in mark 11 when he tells his disciples with god nothing is impossible god can do anything jesus speaks those same words to his father when he's praying in that garden on the mount of olives in mark chapter 14 verse 36 jesus has stopped and He's about to be betrayed, and he is talking to his father. And he says, Father, I know that with you, nothing is impossible. You can do anything. Would you allow this cup of suffering to pass away from me? Nevertheless, whatever happens, I want your will to be done in my life, not my will. Sometimes the mountain that needs to be moved in my life is me. And sometimes we are called to a dynamic, powerful, life-changing, nothing-is-impossible kind of faith in God because God is doing something in our lives. He is moving and lifting mountains. That doesn't mean I get whatever I want. And that doesn't mean the cup of suffering and challenge and pain, that it it gets taken away. But it means that God is moving a mountain of my own self-will and effort, of my own shame, of my own guilt, of my own control, of my addiction to performance. Jesus is calling us to a powerful kind of faith, a nothing is impossible kind of faith. But don't minimize that and don't maximize it. Live it out the same way that Jesus did. And then Jesus continues this challenge by talking about forgiveness. Now, what Jesus is not doing, he's not creating a quid pro quo. He's not saying, if, if you forgive somebody else, then, then you're putting some grace into your God bank account that God's gonna, he's gonna just dribble out to you here and there. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is teaching an important principle about forgiveness and about the way that it works in our lives. If you're praying to God and you realize that you're holding a grudge against somebody else, then stop talking to God and start talking to that other person and find a path toward forgiveness before coming back to God. Because a person who is unable to move to a point of forgiving another individual is also the kind of person who has a very hard time acknowledging their own failures and their own mistakes and their own sins that have created a barrier between them and God. A person who can't forgive other people has a very hard time asking for forgiveness. That kind of person develops Sometimes a victim mentality where they are always in the wrong or sometimes they become an umpire, a judge who's always calling the balls and the strikes and it's hard for them to come to God and ask for forgiveness and experience forgiveness and to live in the freedom that forgiveness brings. I think there's two big parts to forgiveness. One is acknowledging that something's gone wrong. And the other is release. It's letting go. And different people stumble over different parts of that. Some of us, we have a hard time recognizing, acknowledging that something really hurt. That it's not what we wanted. That that we were wounded. That we did not. We didn't experience what we expected. Others of us, we have a real hard time letting go. We hold on to every slight every pain point, every time we were done wrong. We have to learn to acknowledge the harder parts of our lives and then to release them. To to let somebody else off the hook, to let go of our right to be right and to be the one who was wronged. We have to be able to set other people free. And it's in that action that we can find our own forgiveness and freedom. And that's a process. I mean, for some hurts, it's, it's not safe to talk to that other person or maybe they're not even here anymore. But in our own soul, in our own life with Jesus, we have to find ways to acknowledge our pain and then to let go of it, to release it. You know, whatever picture we create of Jesus in our own minds, it falls a little bit short of who he is. His beauty. His beauty his power, his majesty. He's more real than anything we can imagine about him. And so we need to receive him. We receive him for who he is. We learn that our fruit in life, it's coming from the roots, and so we pay attention to that. There's a continual test of of our spiritual health and maturity through our ability to trust God with a big kind of faith and to forgive. Lord, we're thankful for you. And we praise you that you came to demonstrate exactly who God is. Jesus, your life, your ministry, your teaching, your death and your resurrection, it shows us most clearly your character, who you are and who you're calling us to be. And so together as Life Point Church, as your people, we're asking you to lead us. Lead us today and lead us over the next six weeks to come after to see who you are more clearly. To understand who you are and what you're about. Help us to respond with faith, with a big kind of faith, Help us to be able to keep following after you, to take those steps where we are knowing you better and better. Lord, we want you to lead us today, to lead us to your cross, to lead us to the hope that we find in your resurrection.